Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Thursday Thoughts. I hope this podcast episode finds you well. I hope you're all having a great week and a wonderful start again to this new year. Um, I just want to take the time to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast and get bend, bend your ear toward it because... Something that I wanted to do with this podcast is just to have a resource available for Christians, for people who want to learn more about the Bible, a chance for them to do that here. Um, And I also wanted this podcast to be a chance to talk about the real-life practical application of our scriptures and of our texts that we as Christians value so much and that we hold so dearly. And so with this whole season of Thursday Thoughts talking about, you know, Christians and culture, that's what the key, that's what the whole goal has been, is just talking about, you know, the application of all these biblical biblical concepts to our culture today, and, you know, what what is our role in culture, and what should culture be for us as Christians, and so that's what we talked about, and so if you're just tuning in and you haven't listened to all the episodes of the season, we've talked about the first half of the season, we talked about more topical things with culture, like church and culture, our individual cultures, um, our mission as Christians in this culture of the world today, and some other points too, and some other topics, I mean, as well. But now I wanted to shift gears and get more into biblical study and what does the Bible say about culture and like our culture and what it should be, and is it any different than the world's culture today or is it the same? And so I thought the best place to go would be the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, uh, in particular the, the Beatitudes, um, because the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that little section we call the Beatitudes, it is absolutely just groundbreaking, culture-shocking stuff when you really read it and dig into it. And you see that being a Christian is truly just different. It's just, it's supposed to be different than anything else that we could possibly know. And so that is the goal from, for the remainder of this season, is to talk about the Beatitudes and look at how they impact our lives and what it means for us. And so, with that being said, I would like to start today's podcast by rereading the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew cha- Matthew's ch- Matthew, excuse me, chapters 5 through 7 are where you find the Sermon on the Mount. So starting in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1, it reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Here come the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you 
falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so that's our first section of the Sermon on the Mount and what we call the Beatitudes. So in particular today, we're going to focus on the first beatitude, and we'll get into that discussion in a little bit. But first, I want to ask you questions, and I want you to think about the good life, the good life. When you picture and imagine, what do you picture when you imagine the good life? What do you picture when you imagine the good life, the best possible life you can think of for you, your friends, your family, whoever? What do you imagine? Do you see your family sitting outside enjoying a nice day? Do you envision a a nice house with a big yard where the kids and the dog can play? Do you imagine a beach? Mountains? I think the point I'm trying to get at is that we all have different pictures of what the good life would be for us. However, they all have common variables. I think the the four variables that I thought of that I believe that we all have in common, like I said, our pictures may be different. Some of us, our good life may be living up in the mountains away from everybody and just, you know, hunting and fishing and just spending time with our families and in nature. And others of us might view the good life as living on the beach and being around a lot of people and surfing, you know. But like while those are two completely opposite pictures. They are, there are variables that would be the same, I believe, in all of our good lives. And the four variables that I thought of, everybody in their good life wants these things. Five, actually. Sorry. For some reason, I thought it was four. Five. Happiness. Financial freedom. Fun. And independence. I was right. Four. I thought I wrote down five. Nope. Four. So the four things I believe all common that are all common to our pictures of good life and whatever we view the good life is. I think all of them include happiness. We all want to be happy. I think they all include financial freedom. You know, we want to have, we don't necessarily have to be millionaires, but we want to have enough money to where we can be comfortable. We want to have fun. Where we are and what we do, we want it to be fun. And we want to have independence. We don't want to be relying on anybody for anything. I think those are our four main qualities of what we vision the good life to be all about these things usually all entail our good life picture so the beatitudes what's interesting is that the beatitudes paint a picture of life that is upside down or inside out if you will that is it's opposite of the way we normally think about life or at least how we think about like a good life and so I want to I read you guys a quote from one of my former professors, Dr. Ed Gallagher. Uh, he has a book. Uh, it's titled The Sermon, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Explorations in Christian Practice. And in his book, he has a bit where he talks about the Beatitudes and the context of the Sermon on the Mount and all that stuff. And so I want to read you a quote from his book <clears throat> where he's talking about the, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. So he quotes... In this bizarro world depicted by Jesus, you're considered fortunate if you are poor in spirit or mourning or humble. In the world that we usually inhabit, the the opposite of these characteristics are valued. We usually consider those fortunate who are happy, who are not mourning, 
who are powerful and confident, who know how to get their way, who live a peaceable or a peaceable, a peaceful and secure life. This picture of the good life largely determines what we want out of life, right? Peace, security, happiness, etc. Just as it is defined, or just as it has defined the American dream. Jesus challenges us to enter a bizarro world with him. He wants us to reorient what we want out of life. He wants us to challenge our assumptions about what a fortunate life looks like. He wants us to challenge our assumptions and change our assumptions about what a fortunate life looks like. He wants to redefine for us the good life, end quote. So that's from Dr. Gallagher's book. And I couldn't agree more with what he said about what the Beatitudes do. And I think it's a perfect way to start the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with these Beatitudes, and they're almost like the foundational blocks for his whole sermon because he introduces this this new, because we'll get into that. I don't want to jump too far ahead. But Jesus is about to teach this sermon and preach this sermon about the kingdom of God and what it's like, the kingdom of heaven. And how it's unique and it's different and it's not like this world. And the Beatitudes are what an amazing place to start because they're so different and so countercultural to this world. And remember, we're talking about culture. So the Beatitudes help give us a picture of what the culture of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Kingdom of heaven type people, we want to live that with the kind of culture that's going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what we're reading this for us to learn. So the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We call this section of the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes. The word beatitude, um, this is, again, I'm pulling a lot of this information from Dr. Gallagher's book. I'm kind of using that a lot. Um, and he, he kind of quotes, he says, the word beatitude uh, is completely unrelated to the word attitude, uh, but it actually comes from the Latin, I never looked up how to pronounce this, but um, uh, beatus, I guess, B-E-A-T-U-S, which means blessed. Uh, it means blessed. So a beatitude, uh, blessed, I guess I should say. So a beatitude is a blessing. But the New Testament was written in Greek, right? Not in Latin. And the Greek word at the start of each beatitude is this um, makrios, makrios. Um, that's why sometimes instead of beatitudes, these sayings are called uh, makarisms. Um, I'm probably saying that wrong, but like I said, this is something Dr. Gallagher was quoting. But the idea is that they're these like blessings. That's the idea. Um According to the, the standard dictionary of the New Testament uh, of Greek, uh, makrios means like fortunate or happy. And so Dr. Gallagher mentions how he doesn't like the translation happy because it just describes a feeling that can come and go. And Jesus isn't talking about the way these people feel. Uh, Dr. Gallagher discusses how, and I agree with him, that Jesus is talking about the fortunate situation that people are in. And so, similar to Dr. Gallagher, I like the translation of fortunate more so than happy. Uh, by, by absolutely, happiness is a byproduct of, of the Beatitudes and of the life in the kingdom, but I think 
that word blessed, that word that that we're reading in our English Bibles, I think I think maybe a good way to read it is just to replace that word with fortunate. Blessed is fine, of course, but fortunate may be more accurate. Um, anyway, and so the Beatitudes are for every Christian, Christ follower, and not just for pious people, right? We are to display all eight or nine uh, characteristics in our life, all eight or nine of these Beatitudes. Um, there's a whole thing when you, uh, that's something maybe you guys could do. Go read through Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, and see how many Beatitudes you count. I, I like to think there's nine. I think eight is the common view, but I think verses 11 and 12 function as a ninth Beatitude. But again, uh, I don't think it really matters if there's eight or nine Beatitudes. I think what really matters is obviously just the content and that we apply it to our lives. But, like I said, maybe that's something you could go read and tell me what you think. But we are to display all the characteristics of the Beatitudes in our lives. And so, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not surprised that this is the first place, or that this is the first, because I think... So much of Christianity hinges on this one beatitude. So, so let's get into it, right? The first thing that strikes me is that Jesus, want, Jesus wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to be fulfilled. But what does he mean by happy, right? We kind of, can happiness be the end goal? Is, is that what Jesus is saying when he says you are blessed or blessed? Or could it be more, right? We kind of talked about that, right? That, I think it has more to do with happiness because in the Christian life we're not you're not always happy but you're always blessed and you're always fortunate because Jesus died for you and Jesus lived for you. So while while happiness is a byproduct of the kingdom lifestyle it also implies favor with God and I think more accurately we're fortunate. And I think that's what Jesus means. So fortunate um are those who are poor right Fortunate are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, because you're not always happy. Um, but blessedness is also a characteristic of God, right? We can only share that through our union with Christ, right? The true pursuit of happiness, right? Because we're all about happiness. The true pursuit of happiness will not only drive us into the presence of Jesus, but we will also enjoy his favor, it makes me think of Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verse 15, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And so I think it's important that we realize that we read this text and consider that we are that that it's talking about fortune. We are fortunate to be in this situation. And Happiness is kind of like a byproduct. Uh, Jesus is not necessarily, I think, saying happy are people who are poor in spirit because that would be kind of contradicting. Um, but he's saying bless, bless, blessed are they, blessed are they, and fortunate are they. And we'll get to why. So let's get into that. So poor in spirit, what is that? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus is not talking about, I think, material, well, I know, Jesus is not talking about material poverty, but spiritual poverty. We need Jesus in our lives to become citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus says you cannot rely on your goodness to enter God's kingdom. In and of myself, I am morally bankrupt. I am bankrupt. This is not a denial of our worth as human beings, but recognizing our sin 
and desperate need for salvation. The Beatitudes act as a mirror to my heart in how much I need Christ in me. And so I think initially we think of humility, but Jesus is actually about to declare the humble blessed in the attitude number three. And it would be nice to, you know, see what if porn spirit was anything different. However, they're probably closely related, as Dr. Gallagher also mentions in his book. Um, so I think the best thing we can look at, the opposite of spiritual poverty, is probably in some, it's probably like arrogance, you know, self, self-assertion, you know, kind of thinking a lot of yourself. So those who, those who are spiritually poor does not mean, you know, that they, they're poor in respect to God, that they don't care about God and they don't listen to God. Because they, they mourn over their sinfulness and their sinfulness of God's people. You know, there, there's, I think what it means, poor in spirit means you recognize your poor spiritual state. You know, and Jesus is saying people, kingdom of heaven people, are poor in spirit, which means they recognize that they're they're that we're we're sinful and we're broken and we're nothing without Christ. That's the attitude we have to have. And so I agree with something that also that Dr. Gallagher said. He mentioned that you know there's hardly any greater need for Christians this year than to emphasize again the first beatitude, to abandon self-assertiveness, to hold up as models those who are poor in spirit. And there's hardly anything this year less likely to occur. That's what Dr. Gallagher mentions. And so, why do I need to be poor in spirit? We've been mentioning that. Because unless we recognize our spiritual poverty, I, I won't acknowledge my need for a Savior and for a Lord in Jesus. And so, if I just think that I'm good and that I can handle everything and that I'm good enough and that I'm good at everything and that I can handle myself, that is not being poor in spirit. That's being proud in spirit and thinking that you can do all things through yourself that strengthens you instead of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that's where this beatitude comes into play, is we don't need to be so selfish and so self-assertive and think that we can do everything on our own. And that is, a how countercultural is that, right? We live in a world today that's all about me, 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 right? It's all about I. It's all about what I want to do. Number one, my, me, my. And so... Our goal is to not be like that, which is the opposite of our culture, right? And even back then, Jesus, even for the first century Christians and during Jesus' day, this would be countercultural, right? Because it's our natural human instinct to think about ourselves and to think that, you know, well, the safest hands are probably my own, so I'm just going to do it and deal with it. No, we have to learn to be dependent on God and give our desires to him and be poor in spirit and realize the, the, the spiritual state that we're in and that we're broken, that we need God and that we need a Savior. That's the idea of being poor in spirit. And that's why we need to be poor in spirit, because if I think that I can handle everything on my own, then I have no need for a Savior. And I'm basically telling Jesus, I don't need you, dude. I can handle this myself. And that's what it's like whenever we are not being poor in spirit and we think that we can just handle everything and do it all ourselves and selfishly. So how do I become poor in spirit? How do we be poor in spirit? Well, to become poor in spirit, I have to empty myself of pride, independence, and self-achievements and admit my need for Christ. Humility will keep my dependent and trust 
will keep me dependent. Sorry. Humility will keep me dependent and trust God to meet my every need. We need to come to Jesus poor in spirit. And that's the goal. So, humility. So, we need to come to Jesus poor in spirit and not in spiritual poverty. Right? There's a, there's a big difference there. The former comes in posture of humility, saying that I need one greater than me and acknowledges the all-sufficiency of the Savior. The latter says, I am living in lack, and what I have is not enough. It therefore denies the all-sufficiency of the Savior. And so, being poor in spirit acknowledges that, you know, I need something bigger than me that can fulfill me, and I know that Jesus is sufficient enough to fulfill me. But having spiritual poverty is the opposite of that. It's it's saying that, you know, I may not have every, you know, it could be that, I you know, I'm living in lack and what I have is not enough. You know, Jesus isn't enough to do this, so I just got to go do it myself. That is what spiritual poverty is. It's when we don't have Christ. And so, how do you become poor in spirit? Like I said, the biggest idea is just this idea of emptying yourself of pride and independence and self-achievement and thinking that you can do it all by yourself and just admit your need for Christ. And there's a reason it starts like this, because to become a Christian, the first thing you have to say is, God, I surrender myself to you. I surrender all to you. There's an old church song we sing called, I Surrender All. And that's the idea of being a Christian. That's the idea of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom Jesus came to establish and that he established. And so... We have to admit our need for Christ, and that's what we have to do to become poor in spirit and not just thinking that, well, I can handle this myself. We need to be prayerful in everything. We need to give God everything. That's the idea behind this first beatitude. If you're like me growing up, I heard the beatitudes. I knew what they were, but sometimes I couldn't quite describe them to people. You know, I was like, well, I guess that just, you know, being poor in spirit, I guess just means, you know, eh." like I wasn't real quite, I wasn't quite sure. And so we need to be able to explain these principles because These are the foundation blocks of the kingdom of heaven. And so, poor in spirit, right? So we've talked about what is poor in spirit, right? Being poor in spirit means that we give, we are dependent on Jesus, we are humble, and we think, like, not necessarily that you think less of your human worth, but you realize your spiritual state and that we need Jesus because that we're broken without him. And so, why do we need to be poor in spirit, right? We talked about because... We need to be poor in spirit because unless I recognize my spiritual poverty, I won't recognize my need for a Savior. And I'm still trapped in my sins, and I still think that I can do it all myself, which you can't. You cannot. Some of you are probably thinking, well, I can probably handle most things myself. You cannot. You just can't. And so so how do we become poor in spirit, right? We We have to become selfless. We have to empty ourselves of pride and of arrogance and of self-achievements and self-assertion. We need to become, we need to humble ourselves just like Christ did, right? Jesus humbled himself even, he humbled himself and became a person. Like he was God. He is God. Him and God are one in heaven, but yet he, he lowered himself, became a person, lived for us, and died for us, right? Philippians 2 talks about that. We have to display that same mindset and that same attitude in our Christian lives. And so, what's the blessing? 
what's the reward, right? Because most of the time we like rewards and we want to do things for people. And Jesus mentions a reward, right? I say a reward, the blessing, the blessing that Jesus gives. And so, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What was Jesus' mission when he came to this earth? Yes, it was to live a perfect life and to die for the world's sins. Obviously, we cannot minimize that. But what else did he come to do? He came to establish the kingdom of heaven. The idea is that people who are poor in spirit are kingdom of heaven people. People who would be thought of as cursed in the world's eyes are actually the, the kingdom of heaven people. This is the poor in spirit attitude of the kingdom of heaven. And so what's the blessing is that if you lower your if you lower your I'm trying to find the word I want to use, but I'll just reword it. If we come to Jesus humbly and if we lower our basically our bar to thinking that, you know, we we think that we're like 100, like if I could rate people on a scale of 1 to 0, or a hundred to zero, you know, most people we think we're hundreds, and what I mean by that is we we think the most we think a lot of ourselves. You know, we we typically love ourselves a lot, and we want to do things for ourselves, and we think that you know I'm number one. You know, it's my needs first. But Jesus tells us to put ourselves last, and to put others first, and to put Him first. And so, we need to come to Jesus poor in spirit. We need to recognize our spiritual state and realize that we need Jesus. We need salvation. We need his love and his life to guide us. We need him in every aspect of our lives. How do we become poor in spirit? Or let me back up. Why do we need to be poor in spirit? Because we need salvation. We need to be saved from our sins. And the only way that happens is if we come to him poor in spirit and recognize our need. We need the currency that Jesus offers, which is salvation, right? We don't have that currency until we become a Christians and enter the kingdom of God. And so... That's why you need it. And so how do you become poor in spirit? You stop thinking about yourself first. You be humble. Stop looking at, stop saying, look at my achievements. Look at what I've done. And start thinking about other people. Start thinking most importantly about God and about Christ and doing things for them in the kingdom. The kingdom culture can only be lived out when Jesus is the king of our hearts. And so... The whole idea is to relate this to our culture today. I kind of already talked about it a little bit in our it, this this whole beatitude is countercultural to what Jesus taught or to what's in the world today. I mean, in the world today, social media, mass media, all these different medias, um, and most people would tell you to do things for yourself, do what you want, do what makes you happy. And that's completely opposite. It's not about me and being independent on my own and thinking that I can do everything on my own. Christianity is completely different from this culture today. Because Jesus asks us to be different. Jesus asks us to come to him poor in spirit and realize our need for him. And this world will tell you you don't need nothing but yourself. And that's far from the truth. And just because maybe a mass majority of people in the earth on the earth and people who are on social media think that, that doesn't make them right. There have been plenty of people who, you know, were, there was a mass opinion on something, but then they turned out to be wrong. 
And so it doesn't matter if a ton of people think one thing. It doesn't make it right. And so what makes something right is the truth behind it. And Jesus says, right, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? John 14, 6. And so we have to not be so proud, not be so arrogant, and let go of control and give it to Christ and be poor in spirit and realize our spiritual state and our need for him, not just as Savior but as Lord of our lives. There's a difference in accepting Jesus just as Savior. You know, we all want forgiveness of our sins. We all want to go to heaven, but a lot of us don't want to change our life. But if we accept Jesus as Lord, that means we have to change our life as well. I heard that in an IGTV video the other day. Some guy on a podcast was saying that, and I agreed with it. He said, you know, a lot of us, he says, if you're willing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, not just Savior, but as Lord as well, that means you have to change. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to your agenda. You have to die to your wants and needs and die to your will. Because when you become a Christian, you die to yourself. You die to selfishness. You die to arrogance. And you become poor in spirit because you realize that Jesus is what fulfills you and makes you whole. You die to your way. And then you start living for Christ. That's the idea. Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus isn't um, a, a presidential candidate. Again, I heard this on that video. Jesus isn't a presidential candidate, and if he becomes president, you know, we can work to, you know, amend the Constitution and change things. No, Jesus is a king. And so what Jesus says goes, and that is law, and that is final. And so we can't amend this Constitution. We can't amend the Bible, the Beatitudes, or anything like that. We follow it because that is law, and Jesus is king. And so if we truly surrender ourselves and we come to him poor in spirit, we surrender our whole life to him. That's what it means for us. And if we truly lived out these beatitudes, what would our life look like? It would definitely be different than the culture of this world, I can guarantee you that. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you guys some questions real quick. I want you to reflect and ask yourself these questions. Do I live dependent on God or independent of him? Do I recognize the need for a savior in my life? Or do I think I'm good? How does poverty of spirit, or how does coming to Jesus poor in spirit enrich your relationship with him? And so again, we're thinking about culture today. And the idea is that I think the more we look like the culture of this world, the further off track we're getting. Because we're supposed to be different as Christians. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. We have to die to all that stuff. It doesn't mean you can't participate in the world and in things you like, but it's just God has to be the most important thing. We need to be poor in spirit and recognize our need for Christ and recognize our spiritual state and give God the respect and love that he deserves. John 15.5 reads, this is Jesus. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do 
nothing. That's our spiritual state without Jesus. Without him, we can do nothing. See, the world will tell you that, yeah, you don't need Jesus to do all this stuff. And from the world's perspective, they're right. Yeah, you don't need Jesus to go get a job and to make money and to have a family and do all this stuff. But you need Jesus to do anything meaningful in life. You need Jesus and you need to bear his fruit to do things in life that have meaning, to do things in life that actually matter, that will contribute to the life after this one. Because the point of this life is to live the best we can and honor God so that we can spend an eternity with him. That's the goal of this life. And I hope we're all living for that goal. And so that's why we need to recognize that we are poor in spirit and that we need him and that we need to humble ourselves. And again, it's not this depressive mindset, but it's just recognizing that I'm nothing without God. How many of us think that? How many of you listening think that? How many of you go through the day thinking about, you know, man, without God, I wouldn't have any of this. Without God, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I do. Without God, I'd be nothing. Or do we just live life not even thinking about all the blessings he gives us and thinking that we've done all this on our own? The first beatitude is trying to help us change our mindset on thinking that we do it all versus actually realizing that God freely gives. So with that being said, as we conclude, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Thursday Thoughts. I hope this has been enriching, and I hope that it has been as beneficial for you as it has for me. God bless. Have a good rest of your week.